Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Jordan Thomas, PhD, Assistant Professor and State Cow-Calf Extension Specialist for the University of Missouri. Jordan's been on my radar as a potential guest for a little while, but he really jumped to the top of my list recently after reading an article that he published in the Progressive Cattle magazine titled Cow-Calf Theater, How Much is for Show? One I definitely recommend going out and reading if you can find it. I actually got a funny story, try to I, I somehow lost it in my email and was trying to find it on Google and I literally couldn't. So maybe it's not going to be an easy find, but if you can, it's a good read, well worth the read. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. But uh, Jordan, I, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to me today and, and welcome to the Herd Quitter podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Jared. I, I uh, appreciate you saying I've been on your radar for a while. Sometimes that can mean, uh, <laughs> mean different things, right? Maybe I've written too many fiery articles. I don't know. No, no, that's that's good. That's good. You've uh, I've had a few people say you should talk to this guy, and I have been meaning to like dig into your materials more often. When when I hear from two, three, or four people that you should talk to somebody, that usually means you should talk to that person. So I, I've been meaning to get around to it and dig into some of your, your content and see what you're, you're all about. And I've done a little bit, but I, this one came across my desk and I was like, yeah, I gotta, I, I do have to talk to him. So I'm glad I've got you on and, and I'm looking forward to talking to you. But before we get into your, your, that article and some of the other stuff that you're, you're doing, uh, would you mind maybe talking a little bit about your history and what got you into, uh, into the University of Missouri. I'm going to say that probably five times today. University of Minnesota. I'm a University of Minnesota grad. And every time I start with University of M, I, it's natural to go to Minnesota. So I apologize if I do that, but talk a little bit about your history and introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners. Yeah. So I'm one of those rare academics that kind of grew up where they, uh, where they ended up. So I'm actually a native Missourian. I grew up in, in actually in central Missouri and just had the opportunity to to stay at the university in a research specialist position all the way through when I was working on my PhD. And so I was kind of juggling that full-time employment, you know, be, trying to be a research scientist and also do graduate training at the same time, which was kind of a lot, um, but uh, it, it ended up being, I think, a really good thing for me professionally. I just had an opportunity to do a lot of research in a lot of different parts of the country and, and really travel pretty widely, see different production systems around the country. And um, really expand my horizons just in terms of what beef cattle operations can look like in different places. You know, what are our competitive advantages or disadvantages in certain areas? And I, I really wouldn't trade that experience for the world, even though it maybe took a little bit longer to actually finish that PhD program that way, but uh, ended up finishing that in 2017 and then have been on the faculty at, at Missouri ever, ever since then in just a couple different roles. Uh, so currently a cow-calf specialist uh, or Really, my focus is reproductive management of cattle, although I have some broader interest in that, do a little bit in heifer development as well, but have a primarily an extension program and then also do a translational research as well. I have trained some graduate students and obviously I'll give talks and write articles and uh, apparently make people mad on occasion. So I really <laughs> enjoy what I'm, what I'm doing and, and really feel really fortunate to to do that and also, you know, be able to have my cow herd and, and do things like that on the side as well. I always enjoy that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and before that, did you grow up, you said you grew up there in central Missouri. Was that in agriculture and cow-calf agriculture specifically? Well, probably just with enough of a foot in it to to maybe not be a complete idiot when I started <laughs> off as an undergraduate in animal science. I, you know, my, my grandparents had cattle and I grew up on a portion of my grandparents' farm. And so was mm. doing stuff with grandpa every day, you know, had that kind of experience. Um, but, but both of my parents were med techs. Um, and so I had a little bit of that science exposure through them, but didn't really have that immediate family farm kind of responsibility that some folks grow up in. And so it was kind of hybrid, probably the right kind of hybrid for what I ended up doing. It's probably not all that surprising the direction I ended up going, which is pretty sciencey, but also pretty aggy. But uh, sure, uh, yeah, just just really enjoy both of those things, um, the, the actual fundamental science and then uh, you know, trying to translate that into actionable results that happen in the field. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really neat. And, and I, you, when you're talking about kind of your education there, you talked about going all over the country and kind of seeing areas and their advantages and disadvantages. And that's something that's always intrigued me. Um, you know, just the idea of every place having an inherent an inherent, you know, unfair advantages and disadvantages. I think everybody can always look across the fence and say, you know, well, that's better there. The grass is always greener. I wish I grew up there. I know up here in, in January and February, there's a lot of times I'm looking at Missouri thinking that looks pretty nice. But uh, um, what are what what did you find, I guess? Were there some, you know, you know do you, what are your thoughts? I've always asked some of the, the folks that I've had on who have experienced raising cattle in different environments where their favorite spots are and where they think there is ultimately, you know, balancing all the advantages and disadvantages, where is the best place to raise cattle? I'd, I'd be curious with your experience, what you found and where you think might be the best place to raise cattle. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know that I'm going to have a good answer. Um, <laughs> I, I guess the, the way I would think about that is um, I, I'm not sure that there is one of those answers. It's just that mm -hmm. they're, they're all really Right. And so mm -hmm. if I think about where you're at, you know, you probably have a lot of opportunities that I just don't have. You probably have opportunities to graze covers and kind of integrate with row crop production agriculture just differently than I can where I'm at. Um, if I went to South Missouri, um, I wouldn't have some of those opportunities at all, but maybe I have access to a lot cheaper land resources or lower quality pastures that I can rent really affordably. So, so the, those advantages and disadvantages change. I think it's just kind of pick your poison and, mm -hmm. and, and pick what, pick what you think makes the most sense. But, but I will say one, one thing that really changed my perspective is spending a lot of time in the Western U S and to some degree, even in the Southeast, I, I did quite a bit in, in Florida and, and just started to realize how actually kind of easy we have it in this <laughs> Midwest um, because, you know, we've got a really long productive growing season. Uh, we, you know, where I'm at, it's about 38 inches of rain a year. I mean, we get a, a reasonable amount of moisture. We have reasonable quality soils. We can grow a lot of forage. We don't have to fight extreme, extreme heat stress. And, other than that little thing called endophyte infected fescue. Yeah. I mean, really everything's pretty rosy here. And, and so we, we've got our little disadvantages, but mm. I, I guess my, my, my eyes have been opened, if you will, just to what the opportunities really are here. Um, if we impose pretty good management uh, and, and really change the way that we think about the businesses that we're trying to run. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and it's interesting that you use the word like easy and, you know, easier and stuff, because I, I remember when I was uh 
having a conversation with Kit Farrell once over dinner and he kind of said, you know, you've got it so tough up there in Minnesota. We've got it so easy here in Western Colorado or Eastern Colorado, excuse me. And, and uh, you know, that kind of surprised me that he said that because, you know, it's all relative, I suppose. Right. Cause like, like you're saying, every place has got its advantages and disadvantages. And, and he's saying how, you know, he just grazes sections, moves them to the next one. They, they, the grass never grows up in their fences and shorts out fences. He's not dealing with the end of fight. They're pretty potent, good grass and everything. And, you know, the, the challenges that he has is more, you know, different than we are with, they're like faced with complete destock and destocking questions and things. So, yeah, no, it, it I, I think you answered exactly you know, exactly right. Every, every area has got pros and cons, but I, I'd be, I was just curious to hear your perspective as I always like hearing what people think who have had the opportunity to be in multiple environments, uh, to not just somebody who's looking at another environment thinking that looks really good, but somebody who's worked and experienced multiple where they think, you know, might be a better or more ideal place. So I appreciate you sharing that, but, uh, cool. So you, you're working now with the university of Missouri, and uh, and primarily in reproductive work, you talked about what what all is the the stuff. I guess talk talk to me about that and um, some of the research you've done there. Yeah, so I'm really a physiologist by training, reproductive physiologist by training, and uh, have historically focused a lot on hormonal control of the estrus cycle, so synchronization of estrus prior to fixed time artificial insemination or embryo transfer, transfer, uh, you know, things like that, trying to get those technologies um, working a little bit more effectively just by how effectively we can essentially manipulate the, the, the estrus cycle. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously that's my area of, you know, the most intense training, but really in terms of interest, uh, you know, my interests get more and more general all the time. And I think one of the reasons that that, that happens is, you know, these, these synchronization technologies are just tools, right? And tools only do so much and they really only are effective in the right kind of context. And, and when a lot of other things are working right already. And so even though they're, they're tools that I can use to drive in the right direction or drive a little bit harder in a certain direction, it's really the fundamental management that has to be working a little bit better for those things to really pay off. And, and, yeah, it, it's really more uh, the systematic approach to reproductive management year long that that creates the opportunities for those technologies to be successful. And I think that the more that I have realized that over time, I think it's really changed a lot of what I talk about in my extension program, because I can you know go show up at an evening meeting and give a talk about some synchronization research that we've done. And the, the data is still at only about you know 10% of cows in the US actually receive an artificial insemination. So what about that 90%, right? And then most of that 10% is also pretty stuck in their ways. <laughs> so yeah. and so so really what needs to be happening, I think, if we want to improve the reproductive outcomes that the US cow herd is really achieving, what really needs to be happening has more to do with the the fundamental management system. And I would argue maybe even more the mindset that we have as managers in how we manage reproduction. And some of that comes down to just how we think about the business. So I find myself writing more and more all the time, speaking more and more all all the time, really about the the business management side of things and the mindset that we, we maybe could have as we think about heifer selection decisions, cow marketing decisions, and so on and so forth. Because I'm really convinced that when we start to realize the value that we can derive from 
having a little different mindset and making a little bit different decisions there. Then we start to realize, hey, maybe there actually is a little bit of value with synchronization. Maybe there actually is a little bit of an opportunity for use of AI in a broader swath of the industry than currently uses it. And uh, and that that tends to be my focus. I guess we'll see it over the course of my career whether that pays off. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because, and I, I like that you said you like look at it from a business perspective because I I probably look at it more from a business perspective than I I should sometimes, and and I. Uh, should look at it, you know, the, truly we should all look at it holistically somewhat in balance lifestyle and land and resource and everything along with the finances. But I've, I've always been a numbers guy, a spreadsheet guy. And, and so I'm curious how much does, you know, I mean, do you have some sort of way to quantify the profitability changes by using different reproductive tools? I mean, artificial insemination you, you talked about there and, you know, versus what most people probably do is just turn out one bull per 25 cows and, you know, call her good. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, we could do some of that with something like a partial budget, budget analysis, right? Where we just look at, well, what is the cost of using synchronization and AI? And what is our anticipated returns? Um, maybe what cost do we eliminate out of the program by potentially being able to run fewer natural service pools per, per cow, you know, drop that ratio down because we did a timed AI to start breeding season. And, you know, you can play with those numbers and, and they can tell an interesting story. And you can often show that, that, use of that technology is particularly profitable and even in just the first year. But I think the way that I I have started to think about it is actually pretty different than that. Um, because if you really dig into the data, the, the thing that really drives reproductive outcomes in cow-calf herds is what happened last year. And and sometimes that's hard to communicate. Um, but but let me let me say it this way. So the cow that conceives on on day one of the breeding season. You know, 283 days later, you know, she calves on day one of the calving season, roughly. Obviously, mm -hmm. there's biological ways there, but it's about 82 days, right, until that next breeding season starts. And she has to go through this period of time called postpartum anestrus. It's controlled at the level of the brain. It's influenced by her body condition reserves, you know, it's influenced by um, whether she's a two-year-old cow, whether she's a running age cow, it's influenced by uh, the energy that's out in front of her and her environment. You know, what is she actually um, able to consume? Can she stay in positive energy balance? Influenced by the presence of her calf inside, you know, it's influenced by all these sorts of things in terms of how long that period of time actually is. But in most cases, you know, 82 days later, she's cycling and she's ready to go. And, and it's not an issue for that cow that kept, conceived early calves early. But if you take even something as short as a 60-day breeding season, which I think for many cow-calf operations around the country is a, a kind of wishful thinking in terms of the, 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 the calving season being that short. But let's say that cow that calves on day 60 of the calving season, she doesn't have 82 days. She has 22 days until that next breeding season starts. And so mathematically, that cow is a different beast. I mean, she's a different investment, right? Mm -hmm. Because that cow that, that calves that late in the calving season is not cycling mm -hmm. at the start of the next breeding season, except in the rare outlier kind of situation. But but she's not capable of becoming pregnant early in the next breeding season. And she's also pretty disproportionately likely to be open uh, during the course, you know, at the end of that breeding season because she has fewer opportunities to conceive. Knowing what we know about you know, reproduction now in cattle, you know, if we give cows, for example, one opportunity to conceive 
we can go in on day eight and flush out the reproductive tract and we might have a viable embryo about 95% of the time, but you go out three weeks later and you're lucky to have 75% of those cows bred, right? So we lose a lot of early embryos in cattle. So that early embryonic loss issue just means that cows really need to have multiple opportunities to conceive during the breeding season, or, or we're just going to stand to have a lot of them be non-pregnant. So these later Kevin cows, two things happen, right? They're, they're not going to become the early conceiving cows just magically next year. And they're also disproportionately likely to go from being a bred cow in terms of their value to being an open cow in terms of their value. And so those, those cows depreciate a lot more in that production calendar, if you will. I, I sometimes make the beef production capstone class in our division of animal sciences, do a profit and loss calculation for every cow in a, you know, imaginary spreadsheet and try to actually show the anticipated decline in cow value for certain classes of cows, like based on when they conceived during the breeding season. And what they'll find is that those cows that conceive later in the breeding season, therefore would be expected to calve later in the calving season, they essentially incur a pretty heavy uh, reduction in their inventory value. So they contribute to that overall cost of cow depreciation that happens in that next calendar year just as a function of conceiving late and being more likely to be open next year. Um, then the other thing that happens obviously is they wean the, the lightest, youngest calf in the group. Mm -hmm. And the main thing that drives calf weaning weight is really just calf age at weaning. Yeah. Uh, and so, so really for multiple reasons, um, reproductive management in cow herds is incredibly important, but it's mm -hmm. a multi-year process. And so last year's success kind of sets the stage for this year's success and last year's problems kind of create this year's problems. Mm -hmm. And so either way, you know, it's either a, it's either a vicious cycle or it's a virtuous cycle. It's either getting worse or it's getting better. And, and really that's the part that, that takes a little bit of work to address. Synchronization can kind of help start turning that in one direction or the other. Right. But it's, it's really that year long commitment to, shortening the calving season progressively over time that, that creates the real opportunities. Interesting. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. And, and so I, I had not really considered much that statement there you, that you had made either about like the, the greatest impactor or effector of weaning weight is, is birth date. And until this spring, when I went to the ranching for profit school and, and there was a, a person in our class who was part of the, uh, he was, I think, in school, a PhD candidate or something during that working with the guy who made the Wilt, Wilt Bank principles or whatever. Are you probably, Oh, I, was those? it Mike Smith? I maybe I apologize that was back <laughs> right. in April or something, yeah. but he was in my class and he said that. And I was like, gosh, that seems like such an obvious thing that I never would have like just put together is, <laughs> is how simple that is. And, uh, but it, it made me think too, like how, w when we have our vets come out and preg check our cows and, we do a 60 day window and what well, we've been breeding in 45 days and, and selling everything that's bred after 45 uh, to 60. But I was asking you, know, what do most people do like 90 days, uh, 80 days or whatever and, and stuff. And there's, and most people keep their bulls in year round or most people have a 90 to 120 day window. And yet they sell their calves all in one big group at the same time. They've got this massive range and spread of calves. And it's like, you know, man, that, that to me was almost an eye opening thing. One of those, uh, I don't even know what you call them. Just like little, uh, 
little light bulb moments or something that was, was kind of interesting to me. But it, so I'm starting to see maybe now where where you're maybe going with. And I, I won't. I mean, how do you get towards moving towards improving that uh, that shorter breeding window and that shorter calving window then? Well, it's really funny that you mentioned that, you know, I, I'm sure that you're talking about Mike and Stephanie Smith, because I know that they actually went to that ranching for profit school. Okay, nice. Mike that must Smith have been was, them. Yeah. Mike Smith was a, a Jim Wilbank student and, and Jim mm-hmm. Wilbank is one of the, you know, the uh, kind of that second generation of reproductive physiologists and kind of the animal science field. And and I still cite his data all the time because it makes, <laughs> such, a, it makes such a good point, which is, um, you know, that, that the main driver of productivity in cow-calf operations in terms of what a cow actually produces revenue-wise for that year is when she gave birth to that calf during the calving season. How old is that calf at weaning? Because from birth to weaning, you know, a beef calf is going to gain somewhere between 1.6 and maybe 2.4 pounds a day. So let's say we take that two pounds a day midpoint. Well, that means about every estrus cycle worth of time. So every 21 days, three weeks, it's 40 pounds, yeah. <laughs> 42 pounds. I mean, oh. so you think about, you know, you go out to a, a bull sale and, and maybe you look at weaning weight EPDs, or maybe you're, that's on your mind a little bit. And I'm not saying you should emphasize that or you shouldn't. Obviously we know how Kit feels about that. <laughs> I, I get that. Well, we have a major opportunity to just improve the phenotypes that we get in terms of actual weaning weights. Aside from the genetic selection piece, which is, you know, I would argue at least is a little bit important uh, in the right context. But aside from aside from that piece of it, I mean, we have a major opportunity to actually improve actual weaning weights Mm -hmm. really with our cow retention decisions, because those cows that, you know, at a pregnancy diagnosis, for example, like it sounds like you're doing in in your own operation. Mm -hmm. If you go in and you identify that cow that's conceived on, you know, essentially day one of the breeding season. And that cow that's conceived on day 60 of the breeding season, they have radically different net present values as cows. I mean, they, they really do because one is, is disproportionately likely to be an open cow next year, that, that later conceiving cow. And so she is going to incur a pretty substantial loss in value, not necessarily her. I mean, she might prove you wrong, but that class of a cow mm-hmm. will disproportionately be likely to be open next year at preg check. And so we got to account for that and how we think about her value potential change. Right. Uh, and then she's also going to wean a calf. Think about that day one versus day 60, that, that could legitimately be 120 pounds of calf weaning weight. I mean, that's wild. That's a, incredibly yeah. wild. But there's that much of difference top to bottom. Yeah. So I always argue, and it's kind of a, I'll give some credit to Wally Olson and Doug Ferguson and Bud Williams and all those folks that talk about, you know, um, sell by marketing or just maybe being willing to market some cows that are overvalued um, in my state. And I think in Minnesota as well, and really in most parts of the country, I would argue cows are overvalued in the market just because they're bred. Um, and you can really capture the value of bred females, especially young bred females, while knowing that in your own operation, that particular cow that later conceiving cow really has no profit potential, or at least has the poorest profit potential of the group. Mm-hmm. And so just what an opportunity, right. To divest out of cows that have poor profit projections for the next production cycle and to redeploy that equity into something that has more profit potential. Well, that that's really interesting. So I think Wally Olson talks about that being like intrinsic value is what is say right now, you know, or 
May 1st, you're looking calving starting or something, and you've got this cow that's going to calve May 1st and this cow that's going to calve June 30th. And uh, you look at their intrinsic value is what they'll be worth in the fall minus the cost to get there essentially. And so in the fall, you'll have one cow with say a 550 pound calf and another cow that June 30th one with a 450 pound calf, or, you know, maybe even a wider spread than that. And the, on average, those June 30th calves are going to have a significantly higher open rate because they had less time to get bred back versus that smaller cow. So chances are you're she's actually going to be worth less that at that point as well. The calf will be worth less and uh, your costs are going to be the same between the two. You know, am I kind of understanding correctly then that logically it would make sense to select for more earlier calving cows on a regular basis because that intrinsic value at that time over you know a herd average will be significantly higher from the earlier calving cows? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you nailed it. I mean, absolutely. It, the, the cost structure is the same for those cows. I mean, it really is. But yeah. Other than if, if you if you consider depreciation as a cost, you know, that the, then, sure. then the, obviously the later conceiving cow has a higher cost. But but it just mm-hmm. depends on how you if you're Account focused for it. on the value. Exactly. Yeah. Now you're talking about it with the, all of the value on the top side. And so that that really yeah. makes that really makes sense. I, I completely agree. Okay. The, the thing that I'll add there, though, is sometimes we use the word selection in, in two different ways. And um, every time I talk to our geneticists, I always needle them a little bit because because in one sense, we're talking about selection, like moving uh, the needle in terms of um, the genotypes that we have in our operation, right, in a certain desired direction. And that's selection, right? Mm-hmm. But there's this other way that we use the word selection. And it's just kind of like picking, like picking investments. And we really got to do both things in commercial cow-calf operations, right? And and I, I think we've almost lost that mentality because of how much the industry has talked so much about genetic improvement in the last couple of decades. We, we also have an opportunity to select profitable investments and, and really to think about it in reverse, to select investments that we want to divest out of, right? Because they are poorly profitable. And sometimes, you, I mean, you may have cows that you really believe have really good, you know, fertility or something like that in terms of their genetic merit. But if that's a later conceiving cow this year and she has such poor profit potential in the next production cycle, you know, from a business standpoint, I think oftentimes that cow actually needs to be marketed. I, I try to talk about that, especially when I talk about replacement heifer development, because sometimes we talk about selection for uh, fertile heifers. Um, and it's, you know, it's really hard to actually select for fertility traits because they're so heavily influenced by the environment, not just the sure. genetics. So, yeah. and that's what heritability is, right? So um, it's lowly heritable because there's a strong environmental component which means that in any time we see the phenotype of, you know, early conception versus later conception, and we try to impose some selection decisions to, to try to drive in the early conception direction, um, we don't actually move the needle all that much in terms of genetics because there was such a strong environmental component to the phenotype. Um, so that's a longer winded discussion about heritability, but, but you just think about what we're trying to do with replacement heifers on a commercial operation. It's not so much that we're trying to select for fertile genetics. We're trying to select investments that have strong profit potential long-term. And, and so you might have a heifer that, you know, you really are convinced that she has great genetic merit, but if that heifer conceived late in her first breeding season, 
she has just ridiculously poor profit potential to enter the herd as a cow. Right. Um, and, and so that's a, yeah, I think an important distinction when we talk about selection is we're trying to do two things. We're trying to do some genetic selection for, you know, whatever those traits of interest are in our operation. But we're also just from a commercial perspective, trying to select an investment that makes sense in our portfolio. Right. Interesting. So how do we move a herd towards earlier calving cows then? And and it sounds like you're a believer, you're doing research and work on using some sort of a program, a synchronization program or something is, is that kind of the main and only way that we do it? Or, or, I mean, kind of along the lines of heritability, I guess, do we, is this something that over time, as we select for earlier, we're always pulling out the first 30 day calves or you only keeping the first 30 day cows or something that in time we'll have a herd that just consistently breeds back regularly, or, or how do we actually improve that then? Yeah. So let me, uh, let me give a caveat before I start anything. So there's a bucket okay. coming up. So the, the the caveat is this: I, gosh, I have devoted my career right to researching control of the ester cycle, synchronization programs for cows, artificial mm-hmm. insemination, uh, embryo transfer. You know, talk about a believer in those technologies. I'm one. Here's the but. <laughs> sure, sure. But the, the but is that's not the most powerful reproductive technology that there is. The most powerful reproductive technology that there is is having a mindset to manage for a short calving season in the next year. I mean, that's that's the most powerful technology that there is. Uh, if you take a broad definition of technology as just applied knowledge. Um, and so making decisions that drive towards next year's calving season being short really sets the stage for reproductive success in the next year. Now, synchronization can be a phenomenal tool to do that and to move in that direction. But I'm just going to talk to the listeners maybe that have no interest in using synchronization or they're, mm-hmm. or they're on such extensive you know, Western range conditions that maybe it wouldn't even be practical or cost effective, arguably. Sure. So even in those cases, right, we've got a major opportunity to do two things. One is we can insist that we only purchase in re- uh, replacement females, whether we're talking about cows or whether we're talking about heifers and really whether we develop the heifers or whether they're purchased, we can insist that we're only bringing in cows or, or hef- bred heifers that will calve in the very earliest portion of their first calving season in the herd. And that's so critical. One of my kind of big five rules of thumb for being a low cost cow calf producer is don't start from behind. And, and when you when you bring in replacement females that are not bred to calve in the very, very earliest portion of the calving season, they're just behind from the start. They're, they've already started that process of kind of falling out of the herd, working their way out of the herd. And so technology number one, I would say, is just this commitment to only bring in early uh, calving females, females that are expected to calve in the very earliest portion of the next calving season. Sure. Now, now I, I, this kind of gets back to that discussion of selection. I don't know that we actually honestly move the needle that much in terms of our selection for the genetics of fertility by doing that. In fact, I would argue we, we, it's probably minimal in terms of our impact on that. And I hate to be a downer, but it's probably minimal how much progress we'll make over the course of our lifetime in selecting for fertility in our herds in terms of the actual genetics of fertility. Okay. Man, will we make a lot of progress in realized fertility as a phenotype 
if we insist upon that, because we're going to next year, you know, that cow that calves early, well, she's 80 to 90 days postpartum at the start of that next breeding season. I mean, if we're managing body condition appropriately, if we're managing nutrition appropriately, she's set up to be successful. Um, and, and so that's just a really great opportunity, I think, is to, you know, don't start from behind. Always, always only bring in females that are expected to calve very early in their first calving season of the herd. And then number two is really the same rule, but it's just for animals that we already have in inventory. And that's to divest out of cows that are expected to calve late in the, in the calving season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a little bit hard to have this mindset. Have you, have you read the book thinking fast and slow? Have you ever read that? I, I have not, but I will add that to my list. <laughs> yeah. So Daniel Kahneman is a Nobel prize winning economist. Well, he's really more of a psychologist, but he, he run, won the Nobel prize in economics okay. uh, for, for some research on, um, cognitive biases. And one of the cognitive biases that he goes through in that book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is the endowment effect. Uh, And sometimes it's called the ownership bias or the mere ownership bias. Or um, in finance, I think they call it divestiture aversion. And it's just that when we already own something, when we perceive it to be ours, or when it's an asset that we already have in inventory, or it's an investment that we already own, we behave as though it has a higher value. We overvalue it relative to its true market value. And I always, I always do this in a talk that I give, but you know, there's this famous example called the, the mug experiment where they took a college lecture hall and they divided it into three and they gave one third of the class um, a coffee mug from the university bookstore. And they said, you know, this mug is worth $9.99. We bought it at the university bookstore. Here it is. They give one to every, you know, student that's in that third of the class. And they say, it's yours. But your assignment for the purpose of this class is to price that mug. Well, at what price point would you be willing to sell that mug to somebody else that's in this class? So they got to come up with that price. Then the other third of the mug or the other third of the room, excuse me, they give $10 to. And they say, this $10 is yours. You get to leave here with it. Uh, but your assignment is, you know, if you were going to buy a mug today from one of these folks in the class, what would be the price point that you would buy the mug at, you know, with this $10 that we just gave you? Mm-hmm. Um, so price the mug as a buyer, essentially. <laughs> and then they took the other third of the class and they said, you can choose whether you want to leave here with uh, a certain amount of money or a mug. You just have to tell us where the tipping point is. So at what point is it such a low dollar amount of sure. money that you want the mug instead of the money? So, so what's why, obviously the three groups don't come up with the same price, right? Mm-hmm. The, the sellers, the people that are, had been given the mug, I, I think they priced it at like $7 or something like that. Sure. And then the, the buyers that have been given cash, they, well, they price the mug at two something, right? Yeah. And then interestingly, the choosers, they also think the mug is worth two something. They're a lot closer to, to what the buyers would be. Now, if you think about it though, everyone in that class didn't come there with a mug and didn't come there with money. And they're either going to leave with a mug or an amount of money. Right. And it's especially obvious with the choosers, right. That yeah. you know, they didn't come with a mug and they didn't come with a certain amount of money. They're going to leave with one or the other. And likewise, the buyers, they didn't come with the mug or, or the sellers, I should say that the folks that had the mug placed in their hands, they didn't come there with the mug. They they're going to leave with either the mug or a certain amount of money. Yeah. But for whatever reason, they think the mug is worth over twice what the, the other folks think it's worth. Yeah. And really the only thing that happened is the mug had been put in their hands and they were told that it was theirs. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's the only difference is they perceive themselves as already owning the asset. And so what that experiment's been kind of replicated in different ways, but doesn't that sound like late conceiving cows or, or even like open cows that were tempted to roll to the next breeding season or something silly like that? Yeah. There's no way that we would go buy, like, let's say you're trying to have a, I don't know, an, an April calving herd. Well, there's no way you would go buy June calving cows to put into that April calving herd, right? There's no way you do it. But for some reason, it's really hard to sell June calving cows that you already have in inventory. And, and so what that bias is, is in, in the thinking fast and slow language, it's the fast thinking kind of thought process that isn't really logical and isn't really deliberate and isn't slow enough, isn't businessy enough. Um, and it's this kind of reptilian brain that we have. It's still important that we have that kind of ability, but it's not the way to run a business, right? Yeah. And so I, I, I really hammer that point home that the decision not to sell something is really the same as the decision to buy it again. Mm -hmm. Really, every year we make the decision to buy every cow that we already have in inventory if we don't sell her. And so planning as though every cow was going to be sold in the next production calendar and we're only going to buy back the cows that are sort of you know, hitting the desired specs, I think is just a really lovely way to, to run a cow-calf enterprise. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of my rule too, is, um, you know, you buy every cow every year. No, I, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. And kind of as I'm thinking through this and I might be on the wrong train of thought, this is all really intriguing to me, actually. I, I don't know that I've ever had a, uh, you know, this kind of in-depth of a reproductive, uh, kind of conversation or, or thought any thought process. So forgive me if I'm like five steps behind you, but the, the danger, I guess that I'm wondering here is if you have this, this intrinsic value of a cow that's significantly, you know, worth significantly more calving earlier, the danger then would be to say, I need to supplement to move the more cows up. Um, and maybe theoretically that, makes sense. I guess if you can quantify the the value, if you can quantify and say that for $100, I can move X amount of cows up from June 30th to May 15th, and the, the that will increase her in, intrinsic value by $200, that's a good decision. But I guess in time, over time, if that's a model you're continually doing, you're I don't know if you're making progress or not. I guess is, is what what I'm saying making any sense or should I stop rambling? No, it's making a lot of sense. And, and I'll tell you what you're doing. What you're thinking about is you're thinking about the long-term effect that kind of might come back around with a delay. Sometimes I talk about things in, in systems language. And and I, I think what you're talking about is, well, I can, I can create this intervention of supplementation of, of some level that is intended to drive towards earlier conception in the cows so that I have fewer later conceiving cows that have to be marketed. Um, I, I have more highly productive cows that are calving early and weaning off older, heavier calves. But what is the downstream effect of that? Um, you know, in a couple of years, have I, have I not weeded out for lack of a better term, some cows that really need to fall out of the system. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, that that is such a thoughtful point and such a good point because what we really need to do with just about every management decision that we make is we need to look at the marginal returns relative to the marginal cost. And we need to have a good understanding about what 
what the the ramifications of our actions are for later years. Now, I, 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 in terms of that specific question of supplementation, um, I, I think the same could be said about genetic selection, right? Because I think what we've seen this industry do for the last 30 years is really chase calf performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they've drug along cow size with that, right? And we've made pretty hard doing calves and or hard doing cows, right? And so you think about what that has actually done is, yeah, maybe we've created a little bit of an advantage in calf weaning weight. I think that's a little bit debatable, actually, but you know, maybe we've created a little bit of an advantage in calf weaning weight. But as we've kind of pulled cows up in their maintenance energy requirements, not only have we exaggerated their carrying costs and maybe hurt the overall profitability, but in many cases, I think we've actually made it harder for those cows to actually wean off calves that are truly um, at, at a level that they're capable of producing just because they're not offered that level of nutrition in the environment. So we could go intervene and, and provide supplementation to those cows, but have we really fixed that problem? Right. Or, or are we just kind of masking that problem? So I think, I think you're right on track. You know, we have to have a really good understanding of what these um, kind of ripple effects or side effects are of our decisions. Yeah, and, uh, I, I'm probably so. I just did the systems thinking lectureship that the King Ranch Institute does, and so some of those concepts are on my mind. And um, one of the things that I, I think they do such a, a nice job of talking about is um, there's really no such thing as a side effect. It's just that it's just an effect, right? Mm-hmm. But our our perception, our mental model, that effect was on the periphery of our understanding. <laughs> and so we perceive it to be a side effect just because we have a narrow focus and a narrow lens through which we're seeing the world. But if we can broaden up our, our appreciation for what the, the you know, the, the real effects are, uh, we start to see less and less as a side effect and more just as an effect. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one, maybe one, maybe way of thinking about how we move it positively other than supplementation that idea of a virtuous cycle rather than a vicious, a vicious cycle, you know, so something that builds and gets better and better each year. If you think about what starts to happen when you demand that you will only retain early conceiving replacement heifers, for example, mm-hmm. or, that it, or let's say you're buying cows, you'll only, well, let's do the heifer example. So you'll only uh, retain early conceiving replacement heifers. What'll happen is you'll have more calves born early in the calving season, Right. Mm-hmm. And so what will actually happen is now that next cohort of heifer calves that we develop as potential replacements, more of those heifer calves are older and are heavier as they enter their first breeding season. And we'll actually see their results improve. We'll get more of them to conceive earlier, right? So maybe now we have more of a pool from which to select, or maybe instead of selecting only those heifers that conceived in the first 45 days. Maybe now we can do the first 30 days. Uh, maybe we can eventually get to where we're doing something as radical as I do. And I'll only keep heifers that conceived to AI. So that's heifers that, you know, conceived first service AI. And that's the only replacements that we keep. And, and if that's, if you can get to the place where those things are really clicking, now we've turned all of these things into these, you know, these virtuous cycles and we've really set the stage for next year's success just with management like that. Yeah. Interesting. Now that makes a lot of, a lot of sense. And, and hmm, 
<laughs> yeah, I guess the there's it's interesting because if 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 in fact you are right and there's very little heritability of of uh of uh fertility, I guess, and and reproductive strength or whatever you want to call it, I guess, then it would maybe make sense to supplement for a short term to move cows up because by getting rid of them, you're not necessarily calling and you might be, you're not actually improving the genetics of the herd, but you're saying environmentally in time, you're, you're going to be improving the whole system because you're setting their calves that much farther ahead. And if you had just moved those ones up, their calves are still two months behind the calves of the other ones. And you're not necessarily improving the herd as a whole. The other, I guess, challenge and stuff of the the, the supplementation that I I guess as you were talking, I maybe kind of thought myself or answered myself. I mean, it almost scared me at first when I I heard that. I was like, well, gosh, that logically makes sense then that I should supplement, <laughs> and uh, that goes against a lot of what I've always thought. But uh, I guess the a challenge that maybe supplementation does work if you pick out the cow that needs it, but very rarely is that the way that it's actually done. I suppose most people, when they supplement to move a cow or a small group of cows up, they're applying that supplement to the entire herd, which all of a sudden completely blows that, you know, that kind of that value transaction that I talked about earlier. Like if you're spending a hundred bucks to move a cow, you know, up in value 200 bucks. Well, if you're spending a hundred bucks on a hundred cows to move five cows up 200 bucks, that equation totally falls on its face. So, um, hmm. yeah. And I'm just talking out of my brain here. I'm not I'm just like, I'm just rambling <laughs> well, as I'm going, cause this is an interesting thought that I'm just kind no, of talking I, through it all. No, I, I, I appreciate your thoughts. I, I, I guess what I would add on the supplementation conversation is, um, just, just to give you a, a maybe a, a little bit of a middle ground philosophy on supplementation. I'm not entirely opposed to, to supplementation. Obviously I'm a, Calcast specialist at a university get lots of questions about <laughs> yeah. but uh, but but I guess the the answer that I like to give folks is you know if, if we can move our mental model away from supplementing cows and towards supplementing forage if forage is lacking relative to the requirements of cows at that time mm-hmm. then I then I think we start to have a more thoughtful conversation about supplementation in a strategic way that actually has some return potential. And then what I really get excited about is when we start thinking that way, then I get to ask the question of, well, why are my cow requirements that high at a time in which my forage on offer seems to not be capable of meeting their requirements? And then we can go down a path of, well, well, maybe I'm not really capping at the right time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No. And and so if fertility is not a heritable trait necessarily, but fleshing ability and, and and really fertility, a lot of times comes down to being in the proper condition at the proper time. Part of that being what you're just saying right there is, uh, you know, kind of timing <laughs> the right time so that you're aligning with when you have an abundance of high quality feed. But part of that is an animal's maintenance ability and animal's actual fleshing ability. That is significantly more heritable than fertility. Is it not? Or well, I, I love where your head is at. And so, so let me uh, let's let's maybe first talk about that heritability of fertility um, because I fertility is heritable in in all of the studies that have have really ever looked at it. Um, it's just that it's lowly heritable, um, sure. and so it'll be somewhere in that range. I think the average of the studies for for like. Uh, heifer pregnancy rate or something like that. The heritability is something around that 0.15 range or something. So, so pretty lowly heritable compared to our more structural traits where we're, you know, often above 0.5 or something like that. So Mm -hmm. 
what's funny is I, I hear some speakers, right, in this, especially in the regenerative act space, that'll that'll talk about heritability and they'll say, well, actually, reproductive traits are highly heritable, and then they'll they'll give some kind of caveat. And I always want to ask them to define what heritability is, because I think a lot of people actually struggle to define what heritability is if you actually stop and define it. Sure. It has a funny definition and, and it's the proportion uh, or, or the, the variance in the genotype um, and what proportion that is relative to the variance in the, um, the phenotype. So the, the variance in the genotype relative to the variance in the phenotype. And essentially what that means is in our genetic equation where we have phenotype, which is whatever it is that we're measuring or we're looking at equals genotype plus uh, environment uh, plus the interaction of genotype and environment. But let's just make it simple. It's phenotype equals genotype plus environment. What we're kind of getting at there is, is what is the environmental impact? Because anytime the environmental impact is large, heritability is low. Sure. So, so anytime that there's a strong opportunity for an environmental component and, and environment in this case just means anything that isn't genetics. Um, anytime there's an opportunity for strong environmental influence, heritability is going to be low. doesn't mean that the underlying genetics don't matter. doesn't mean that we can't make genetic progress. doesn't mean that we can't select for it. It's just that whenever we observe a phenotype, a large piece of that phenotype is just environment. Um, so, so I'll give you the example of skin color. You know, if we think about uh, human beings, skin color, it, it's really pretty highly heritable, right? It's a, you know, very highly heritable. And there, there's a little bit of an environmental component because, you know, how much sun exposure do you have is going to change the tint a little bit, especially in lighter skinned individuals, right? But for the most part, it's pretty highly heritable. When you think about something that's a little, um, a, a little bit, less highly heritable, something like maybe BMI, body mass index. So kind of weight per unit height. Sure. It's less heritable. Why is it less heritable? It's not because there's not a genetic impact on it. That's pretty strong. Obviously there is a genetic impact on it, but it's, you know, there's a huge environmental component. What, you know, what is the nutrition that you have access to? What is your socioeconomic, you know, status? Uh, what part of the world are you in? What type of food are you, you eating? Um, you know, there's a huge behavioral component, a huge environmental component where it's not just the genetics of, um, of just one's predisposition to carry body fat or something like that. So that's a really long winded way of saying when we talk about fertility, um, really any fertility trait, if we go practice phenotypic selection, which is we, or we pick out animals that conceive early, they have the phenotype of early conception. One thing that we have to remember is that a large part of that phenotype is just kind of management, environment, luck, randomness. Um, and, and some of it has less to do with the genetics and just more the deck of, you know, the, or the hand of cards that that calf was dealt. I'll, I'll give you a heifer example. I may have a very, very fertile heifer that happened to be born later in the calving season. Um, and she's 13 months old when she begins her first breeding season, instead of 15 months old, she's at a disadvantage despite having potentially really good genetics for fertility because she may not have hit puberty yet. Right. Mm -hmm. And so her, her phenotype, the environment, which is just her age doesn't have to do with her genetics, right. But her age kind of potentially masks some of the genetic merit that she has for fertility. 
So I realize this all, oh, this is a really long-winded conversation, right? But, <laughs> but, but, but the point is, when, we, when we're trying to select for fertility, we do have really pretty good traits, uh, trait selection tools to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we obviously can select investments that, that allow us to uh, be profitable. And, and in doing so, we're going to put some selection pressure on uh, fertility, even just with phenotypic selection. It's just that we got to be honest that in the grand scheme of things, it, it takes a long time to move the needle very much on those things. Sure. <laughs> and so I think our main impetus or, or the main takeaway from that is hopefully just focus on having a commercially viable business model uh, and, and emphasize picking out females that um, conceived early in the breeding season are expected to cap early in the calving season and maintain a functional business model that way through their actual realized reproductive performance. And yeah, the genetic selection that we have happened for fertility there, it, there's probably a little bit of that happening in the background, but, but that's not really the point. The point is to have a functional business, you know, and, and we're going to move a little bit of the needle on, uh, on reproductive functionality, just genetically as well. But that's kind of just icing on the cake and and it's going to take a long time. Yeah, I think I, I follow what you're saying. And uh, it's interesting. Environment has a huge effect. I'm just trying to figure out how I don't have a, clearly the uh, fluentness. You're, you're doing a really good job of explaining this, walking it through. Um, but uh, if we want to select cows it, from a profitability standpoint, again, the danger, I guess, I, of of this, and it totally makes sense to me. What you're saying, though, it, it, we should focus on those earlier calving cows, but the, the danger that it sounds like to me is incentivizing earlier calving cows one way. You know, we may not be selecting for fertility, but we're selecting for cows that can handle a poor environment, which is cheaper and financially cheaper. So if we select low maintenance, fleshy, you know, easy fleshing cows that can handle a very poor environment, they will get bred back in a shorter period of time than a selecting for a cow again we're not selecting for fertility but selecting for more of a growthy high milk cow and if if the focus is just on the early 30 days then we could easily justify expenses and higher inputs to get them so to get them to breed back in those early 30 or days early 30 days and so if we want to be financially conscious and you know still reduce our costs overall we rather than just selecting for the first 30 days, you know, and, and you know, if, if, if you, if you select just purely for the first 30 days or the first, whatever, you know, window, um, and you have a very poor breed back, you have 20, 30, 40%, you know, whatever in those first 30 days. And you say, well, I got to supplement and then, then you get expenses. But if you select low maintenance cows that can do it without that, you're not selecting for fertility, but there is something to a sort of a genetic selection some sort of a cow that fits the ability of an animal to get bred back earlier on. No, no, I think you're really conceptually on point and, and philosophically I'm with you, which is that Mm -hmm. we might not necessarily be making a lot of progress over the course of our lifetimes in the cow cap business in terms of um, whatever those genes are that are just actually associated with the, the legitimate ability to conceive and maintain pregnancy and, and, you know, the reproductive physiology aspects of fertility, that it seems to be hard to really make a lot of progress on that. 
But what you can do is make progress on traits that allow for cattle to, to function well in their environment and be in positive energy balance, because we know that positive energy balance during the breeding season is pretty essential for cows' ability to get rebred. Um, we also know that cow body condition score at the time of calving is a really critical driver of her ability to get bred. And so if we're going to have a, a management paradigm in which we supplement really minimally, um, or especially if we're going to have a management paradigm where we supplement re really minimally and we're kind of calving out of sync with nature at all, um, then we, I mean, we really got to select for cows that have a lot of fleshing ability, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and in doing so, that's going to help us keep our, our realized phenotype of reproductive performance, you know, pretty high. Um, despite that, you know, fundamental aspect of the genetics associated with fertility. So I, I do think you're onto something, which it, it's not exactly that fertility is just body condition score, because that's not really right either. Mm -hmm. But because of the impact that body condition reserves have on fertility and the interaction there, yeah. and because of the, the impact of cow's energy status during the breeding season, and that having to do a lot with her lactational output and her ability to go consume a lot of forage volume, um, that, that, that does matter. Uh, and so I think that you're right. I think that approaching reproductive performance in cow calf herds and, and trying to improve that is not just about, you know, what synchronization product can I use? And it's also not just about, well, what decisions did I make last year in, in management of the length of the calving season? That's a big piece of it, but it's not just about that. Um, it's also about what kind of cows am I running relative to my management system? Yeah. Because that piece isn't right. It's going to be, I mean, we're fighting up the yeah. battle. Yeah. No, that I, I like what you just said there too, is your cows relative to the environment you're trying to run and yeah, the how. Yeah. Nope. You, you put it in a lot better way uh, <laughs> words than what I had the ability to, uh, to put into words. So I appreciate that. <laughs> um, makes a lot of sense. I, and, and I, uh, no, I, I like that. I've, I've definitely learned something here already. Um, so you, you kind of started this, this trail here with the, uh, you know, talking on the, the guys who aren't going to be able to AI and re, you know, use, some of the other reproductive technologies that are out there talk for a little bit. And I know we're already pushing up on an hour or more here. We won't even get into that article. I'll have to do that another time, but um, <laughs> what, uh, what are some of the technologies that you can use in an operation that, uh, you know, has that ability or has the desire to do that? Yeah. Um, so I think one of the major opportunities technology wise, honestly is synchronization. Um, and, we just have to be thoughtful about how we apply it because just like you said, I mean, if synchronization is a tool that we're using just to mask the fact that we're not really using genetics that are cut out for our environment, then that's maybe the wrong solution for the, the problem. Right. Um, but it is a really good tool to begin driving towards early conception when we do have some problems, you know, if you've got a long drawn out calving season currently, and maybe you're trying to use some genetics that are, are new and you're trying to move that piece of the puzzle, maybe you're trying to generate um, some progress on, you know, only keeping early conceiving replacement heifers. You know, I, I would just encourage you to think about using some synchronization, even if all you're going to do is use sync programs and turn in natural service bulls. 
Um, there are some great tools to actually do that. Um, we have an extension publication through Missouri on ester synchronization recommendations specifically for natural service. Um, there are some really low cost, you know, limited number of handling type of programs that can work well in those cases. And if you are trying to just move the needle a little bit, and maybe you're thinking about using AI in the future, or you're just trying to tighten up a, a herd that, you know, currently is kind of strung out, great tool, you know, great tool, whether that's a cedar-based program or a single-shot prostaglandin program or something like that, it's a great tool just to move in the right direction. Um, of course, I would also say, you know, I, and I, I realize this is Feral Cattle Company's, you know, podcast, right? And they're in the business of selling bulls. Well, they also sell semen, right? And so I, I don't think it is opposed to, to AI by any stretch. Um, AI is a phenomenal tool because of what it does, um, not only with the use of synchronization, right, where we get some cows jump started if they're later calving cows, later, um, you know, younger heifers or whatever it is that we're trying to do, um, but not only to fix those problems, but because it allows us to service every animal at the start of the breeding season, right? If you do a, a fixed time AI program, for example, and every cow receives an artificial insemination to start off the breeding season, you know, I think it can change your understanding of what exactly a good pregnancy rate to AI is. If you really stop and think about what it means, if all of a sudden snap of your fingers, over half of the cows are pregnant on day one of the breeding season. I mean, that's, that's humongous. That, that is huge. And so, um, translates to thousands of pounds, I suppose in the fall, well, depending on the herd size, but it real pounds and dollars without changing anything else other than a few more trips through the shoot, I guess. Well, and it really can. And, and then the other thing is in terms of the consistency of that calf crop, you know, let's say you, you pick out an AI sire that, you know, I'm not going to tell you what kind of sire to pick, but let's say that you, you kind of know what it is that you're trying to do genetically. Um, and you go pick out a, a sire from whoever seed stock operator it is that you're, that you're wanting to use. Well, if that means that you just made 50% plus of the calf crop sired by that particular sire. And, and by the way, let's say that that's 25% of the calf crop is now heifers that are sired by that particular sire, mm -hmm. so half sib females that are all essentially born on the first day of the calving season. I mean, what a cohort of calves that is, uh, you know, set up well to become replacement heifer candidates and, and do quite well, you know? Um, so it, it can, it can be a leverage point, right? It, it's starting in that direction creates an opportunity for future success. I'm not saying everybody needs to do it. I realize relatively a, a small percentage of the industry currently does AI in cows. I, I fully appreciate that. Uh, but, but I think if, if folks really sit down and look at the opportunities, um, to make multi-year progress, I, I think a lot more of the industry probably ought to be using those technologies if they're really honest about the return potential there. Uh, it's just that we got to couple that with a good business model and some good cow marketing decisions, good heifer selection decisions. Yeah. No, you're you're uh, you're blowing my mind. I'll be honest. Well, no, but. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm gonna have to do some thinking on this. This is make makes a lot of sense and it aligns well with what I just remember one of those kind of light bulb moments, I guess, when he talked about how much calf age affects weaning weight and profitability without really changing any other piece of the system. But uh I guess from a an AI perspective, if somebody wants to go down that route and and sync them and and get this early, this massive group of calves early on. 
what are the different options briefly, I guess, if you want to talk about them and, and what are the lowest labor in, I, I get scared away at the idea of having to run cattle through a shoot. What is it? Two times prior to AI or something like, I mean, three times to get them AI bred and, and stuff that seems like a hassle and a headache for some folks, but is, is that the way it has to be done? Are there lower, uh, lower labor ways to do this? Yeah, gosh, great question. Uh, so in terms of thinking about the labor piece, let's just remind me to circle back to that. But just in terms of a resource, in terms of a resource, probably the best thing I can point folks to, and I know it's kind of plugging my own stuff, but we, we put out a publication last fall called Whole System Management of Beef Cattle Reproduction. And it, it, listen, you can get on online and you can order a printed copy if you really want to pay money for one, but you can also download the whole thing. And so just, just download it. And, and there's good stuff in there in terms of um, synchronization recommendations for beef cows, um, really kind of hold your hand through that. If you've never used some sync programs in cows, uh, sync recommendations for heifers. Um, again, those recommendations for natural service. I, I suspect some of your listeners would have an interest in use of sex sorted semen. There's some specific information on that as well. And, and that publication is pretty expansive. It's got 30 plus extension publications in it. They're all kind of new and all kind of, uh, uh oh, peppered with some of my mindset. And so it's got a publication in there on managing cow depreciation costs and, and all of those sorts of things. Um, so I, I think your listeners would probably enjoy that. And if you want to get started with synchronization, um, that's just a really good place to, to start. I think uh, it, there, I also have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's Mizzou Repro on YouTube uh, and a Facebook page by the same name that we have some videos there. And so if you've never used you know, a cedar, or you've never given a shot of prostaglandin, or you've never used an Estrotech patch or something like that. Or, or even if you, um, um, you know, want to see what that AI process looks like or what a portable breeding barn looks like and how those operate. Uh, you know, I've got two or three minute videos on all those little topics that are there on that channel. So feel free to check that out. Mm -hmm. Now, just to circle back though, to that labor piece of it and, and the opportunities um, there, I guess one of the, the things that um, well, before we started recording, we were just having a little informal conversation about how excited I get to talk to people that have a little bit more of a regenerative mindset like I do, or maybe a little bit of a holistic management mindset. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things I really enjoy about that is that they are really good planners and they're also really good replanners, right? But, uh, but they're really good planners. And often it takes a little bit of grazing management to pull some of this stuff off a of grazing planning, I should say, to pull some of this stuff off because often we got to have cows positioned fairly close to handling facilities at key time points, or we got to have some mobile handling facilities or something like that. Um, but if anybody can pull that off, it's the kind of folks that listen to podcasts like this and, and learn to be good planners. Right. And it's, it's, it, that, that's just part of the game as you manage, you know, grazing programs and, and try to do planning for an operation anyway, is trying to think about where cattle need to be positioned. Mm -hmm. It's, it's definitely possible. It's even really possible in expansive range conditions. I mean, I've worked a lot of cattle in the West through portable corrals and portable handling facilities. And, you know, if you, if you really believe that there's some return on investment opportunity there with the use of these technologies, or you're trying to move in the right direction, you know, you can go get it done even in uh, extensive range conditions. The last kind of question I have on this, and this is one that I don't even have formulated. Like, I don't really know. I've just heard Alan Williams. I think it is talk a lot about epigenetics and, and the, I don't, I don't even know what he says are the benefits, but I, I believe he talks about there being some benefits to 
natural sire breeding versus AI, you know, and, and when you throw in more of these other, you know, sync things and stuff, is there anything on that worth talking about? And if you don't know what he's talking about or what I'm talking about, I don't know either. So we'll just scrap it then. But is there anything on the epigenetic side of using some of these that are going to affect, have long-term effects or disadvantages? Yeah. So, so great, great question. So when we talk about genetics and when we talk about epigenetics, um, just for listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with that terminology, when we talk about genetics, we're talking about changes in the base pair code of the DNA. Essentially, we're talking about the, the fundamental language of that DNA actually changing which base pairs it has at certain regions of the, of the genome. That's traditional genetics. Epigenetics is kind of everything else. Epigenetics is gene expression. Um, epigenetics is, um, involved in um, histone methylation, for example, is one mechanism by which epigenetic changes happen, where we've got these portions of the genome that are are kind of folded in such a way that they're then closed off from expression. They're kind of silenced. Uh, We have other epigenetic mechanisms, but that's just kind of one of the classical ones. So if you think about it, epigenetics is really an important uh, component of life because your liver and your skin have the same genome but they're radically different tissues, right? And the reason that they're radically different tissues is because genes are expressed in one tissue, but silenced in another and expressed in another tissue and silenced in the the first. And and that's part of how gene expression works is just through the epigenetic architecture. The epi just means on top. So the, the things that are happening on top of the genome that are kind of regulating gene expression. Now we do know that we can mess up um, future offsprings genetic expression, for lack of a better term, with some effects that happen during gestation. There are some classic examples of that, even in, in human beings, um, you know, with, with famine, um, where we have some severe misregulation of metabolic functionality in offspring, just as a result of the, the famine that the, the mothers endured. There are even some really interesting things where um, management of sires potentially has some effects in the next generation that aren't necessarily associated with traditional gene exp- uh, or genomics, you know, traditional DNA base pair changes, but potentially are associated with um, changes in gene expression. Traditionally, most of those things kind of get wiped clean and, and we start fresh every generation and we don't have these transgenerational effects, but but there are, you know, more and more opportunities to understand what those transgenerational effects can be all the time. What we do know is that with our really, really advanced reproductive technologies like in vitro fertilization and embryo culture and things like that, that because of just the artificial environment that we're putting those uh, gametes and ultimately those embryos into, that we can have a little bit more misregulation potential of, of gene expression and we can have some aberrant things occur in those situations. Um, One example of that that's in the published literature is large offspring syndrome, where um, IVF produced calves are slightly more likely to uh, be um, exhibiting this large offspring syndrome. Um, It's still pretty rare, but it it does happen on on occasion. Um, there, There really is less and less uh, potential for some of those aberrant things to occur um, with our less intrusive reproductive technologies like embryo transfer in just traditional flush embryos. Um, we have, you know, really very negligible uh, effects on, you know, conditions like that in terms of their prevalence. 
AI, there's really extremely minimal evidence in the literature for, for things that are associated with that. I, I think when I think about the risks of using AI, I think a lot less about um, epigenetics and no disrespect to Alan, but I, I just think a lot less about that. And I think about more traditional genetics, because I think one, one thing that has certainly happened in the beef cattle industry with the use of AI is a lot of use of sires in, for example, the Southeast and Central Midwest, where we struggle with fescue and heat tolerance and hair shedding is important. There's been a lot of use of Western genetics where there just hasn't been selection pressure placed on those traits. And a lot of those cattle really do fall apart um, in our Southeastern environment, in our hotter climates and things like that. That's not really epigenetics. That's just traditional genetics. Um, but I do think that that underlying point of AI is something to approach really thoughtfully and to use as a tool strategically to use genetics that are really suited to your environment, suited to your production model. Um, I think that's a really good point. Uh, whether we're talking about genetics or epigenetics, I think it's just a really good point that if you're going to use AI as a tool to make genetic progress, you know, do your homework on what sires it, exactly it is that you're trying to use and what the traits are that really pay in your environment. Mm -hmm. I am probably getting close to brain dead because I've been sitting here <laughs> listening very closely to what you're saying. This is not a conversation I'm, I would consider myself to be an expert at all in, but I <laughs> feel like I've learned a lot and I really appreciate you coming on today, Jordan, and talking about what, you know, all this. No problem at all. I, I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, good. And, and before I let you go, I will ask, are there any other resources? You mentioned a couple through University of Missouri and you mentioned a book uh, that I'll, I'll get in the show notes, but were there any other resources, books, and that can be specifically reproduction related, or it can be something totally different, you know, any re resource recommendations that you would have for the listeners? Well, um, you know, what? one thing that I really believe is I, I really believe that cow-calf producers don't often think of themselves as, as business people. And so they, they maybe don't often, I should say not they, we, I'm one, but we often don't think of ourselves as, as business people. And sometimes we often don't seek out really good business guidance. Um, a great book for everybody that's a small business owner or a mid-sized business owner is The E-Myth. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's just a fantastic book about um, you know, the mindset of being a technician versus the mindset of being a manager. This is the mindset of being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And I think it, you know, if you, if you haven't read that book, just on the business side of things, um, go read, go read that. Um, another one that I think would be good. Um, this is a little bit out there, but uh, there's a book by W. Edwards Deming called Out of the Crisis. And it's really a book on um, manufacturing, uh, but Ed Deming is really responsible for kind of rebuilding post-World War II Japan uh, in their manufacturing ability. And his idea about systems and how systems function and, and how to manage variability in systems and how to drive towards quality, I think is a really, a really fascinating read if you read it with the, the lens of a cow-calf producer, um, because you know, he, he, for example, will go through, well, there, there are actually certain wise costs to incur, and we shouldn't necessarily be afraid of some costs uh, when those costs can, you know, really drive towards quality and really often, you know, having slightly higher costs in one area can lead to lower total costs. 
you know, if you start to think about it, we deal with that all the time, right? Where we can maybe invest in slightly higher pasture costs because it can radically drive down supplementation costs. Or I would argue, you know, we can invest a little bit more in, in reproduction because it can radically drive down cow depreciation costs. Uh, and, and so there's that idea of, of picking costs that really create opportunities and leaning into those costs instead of being afraid of them um, it is a little bit tough for us to swallow in the commodity kind of business, but uh, I think really helpful as we start thinking about how we have really high quality businesses. Cool. Yeah. Good recommendations. Appreciate that. Um, how can people reach out to you or find more about what you're doing if they want to look, if, if they want to, uh, you know, look into it more? Yeah. So um, at the university, you can find me on Missouri.edu. If you just search for Jordan Thomas, I'll pop right up and you can find my contact info there. And uh, email's great. If you like email, uh, my office line is also on there too. And you can call and I'm often am running around doing stuff. And so uh, you may not catch me in the office, but if you leave me a message, I'll, I'll definitely call you back uh, if you don't catch me. Oh, I, I think I mentioned the YouTube channel already, the Mizzou Repro YouTube page, mm-hmm. uh, Facebook page as well. We'll post some content on there. Also have MizzouRepro.com. I, I write a lot. Um, I, I probably write something every couple of weeks somewhere and um, try to keep up. Oh, just a log of, of all of those articles online so that folks can find them in one place. So that's on MizzouRepro.com and it's got some links out from, from there. Uh, but yeah, that's, I, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of if you really want to. The question is whether you really want to. <laughs> awesome. No, well, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully some people have learned and, and now they know where to find you if they've got more questions, like I'm sure I will. So <laughs> I appreciate it again, Jordan. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Faro Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.